Well, this morning I want to share with you um, the parable of the lost sons. And maybe you've never heard it called that before. Maybe you've heard it called the parable of the prodigal son. And there's always a focus on the son that ran away. But interesting thing about this story is who Jesus is telling the story to. You see, if you look at Luke 14, Jesus is busy teaching the Pharisees about the heart of the Father and the desire of the Father to call people to himself. And they're really having a hard time with this teaching, but they're open, they're a little open. They're listening. When somebody's listening, you've you got an open ear, you've got to share, right? And that's, this is what Jesus is doing. He's got these Pharisees that are listening. And when we get to the beginning of Luke 15, we see that some of the unreputable people, the tax collectors, the sinners, hear Jesus' teaching and they show up too. And they are offended by the presence of these sinners. And that's when Jesus tells not one story, not two stories, but three stories about God's value about lost things. Starting with the lost sheep, the one sheep out of a hundred. And then the lost coin, one out of ten. And then the lost son. But I, I learned this in reading from a brother, Warner Mischke, um, that there aren't one, there isn't one lost son in this story, there are two. And so I want to look at this scripture with you And uh, as I set this story up, too, I want to look at this story through a different lens. So when we look at a story, we usually interpret stories through the lens of our own culture. And there are actually three major worldviews or three major um, lenses of interpretation uh, uh, in in the world. And um, so when we look at these worldviews, And uh, the the first one is our own worldview, and it's what we call a guilt-innocence worldview. And really, this kind of came into place with the Reformation and the Enlightenment and just how the European thought developed. And so when we look at the gospel, we started looking at the gospel through the lens of a legal thing, almost kind of like the Pharisees did, to be honest. They had the law of Moses, and the law of Moses was very clear in their minds, and if somebody's violating it, they're not worthy of God's love and his redemptive intervention. And so we've kind of interpreted the gospel largely um, from that perspective as well, and this is something that largely came out of the Reformation, um, but it's something that is deeply entrenched in our missions methodology and in our theology, this idea that God is a holy God, and he's a just God, and God cannot be in the presence of sin, and so what does he do? If there's sin, he can't be in the presence of it, and how does that affect us as people? So this, this orientation of the gospel is pretty familiar to us. I don't need to preach it to you guys. But there are different ways of looking at God's activity in the world. Another view is, um, another worldview is what we call the, uh, the fear and power worldview. And then we see this in, in some places in Latin America and Africa. And, and there's kind of a shamanistic um, view uh, uh, there's an, of animism where there are spirits everywhere. Spirits live in everything. And so um, part of life is is appeasing spirits and not offending spirits. And so some of the things, the rituals that we see in cultures, um, um, wearing talisman to protect yourself from, from evil spirits or, um, 
or blessings of certain places um, or avoiding places because they're cursed places. These are things that we see in a fear, uh, power worldview that people are afraid. And God's not even someone that's in their thought to be an approach. They're dealing with all these other evil spirits and things. And we see examples of, of God dealing with people with this worldview. We're saying, um, these are the days of Elijah. Well, what did Elijah do? God told Elijah to call down fire on his sacrifice, challenge the prophets of Baal. 600 of them like, if your God's real, he'll send fire. He didn't. And just to make sure that they knew that God was truly the one true God, he pours water onto his offering before God sends fire down. That's a power display. And that's one of the ways God works to reveal itself. But there's another worldview, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, is this honor-shame worldview. And so we see this um, worldview in place in Hinduism and in Islam. We see it in most of Asia, including Central Asia. We see this in the Middle East. Um, and this is, uh, this is more of a communal view of God. How do we look at God and our relationship with God as a community of people? And, and our identity is anchored in our community, not individualism like, like we do in the West. It's anchored in our relationship with our community. And so how they interpret God's interaction with humanity is different, even if they're reading the same scripture. And this is something we learn in Azerbaijan, that they can read the same scripture and have a very different perspective on it because of where they're coming from. And yet, is it the same gospel? It is. So let's look at this story together. So um, we go to uh, Luke chapter 15, and beginning with verse 11. And so this is the third story that Jesus tells I need these, y'all. Uh, <laughs> so he also said to them, a man had two sons. The younger of them came, and he said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. So the father distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to care for what? He sent him into the field to care for his pigs, to feed his pigs. And this younger son, he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Now the older son, he was still out in the field. And as he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Of course, there was dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fattened calf for him? Son said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. Father, as we hear this story, thank you for your great love that you have for us. Thank you for your compassion, that you welcome us back, even in our lostness. Father, help us to understand your word through a new perspective this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talk about this honor-shame worldview. And first of all, I want to look at the shame of the younger son. I think a shame is quite obvious. But think about this, not just the deeds he did, this evil thing, but what was it about the demand of the son that was not just sinful and offensive, but was hurtful and insulting to the father? I mean, there's the obvious, okay, dad, um, let's speed this along. Um, Dad's too healthy for me to enjoy my inheritance while I'm young and in my prime. And so instead of wishing his father dead, I guess it's noble that he just asked for, God, for his father to give him his inheritance early. And then he goes off and he lives in a way that's con- totally contrary to the way he was brought up. And so his lifestyle, how does his lifestyle reflect on his name? And this is the name that his father gives him. And you think about how Jews in the days of Jesus, how they were known. They were named by, they were known by the name of their, their father. And so, um, you know, when Peter makes his great confession, what does Jesus say to him? Simon, son of Jonah, God has blessed you because he's revealed this to you. It doesn't come from man. He refers to him by his father's name. Or what does he call James and John? 
Well, he doesn't call them the sons of Zebedee. It's like, you think Zebedee must have been some, some interesting character that he calls James and John, John the sons of thunder. You know, it's like, so the status of a son, your reputation tied to the reputation of your father. And as a son, you're expected to live in a way that exemplifies the way of your father, right? And what is it that calls his son to humility? What does the younger son expect from his father? After all, his father is an honorable man, he's a just man. What does he expect? He expects some level of compassion or he wouldn't go back. Now, how about the shame of the older son? Why is he angry? And is this anger, does this anger reflect the character of his father? I identify with this anger, by the way. But what, what does the son do that's insulting to the father? When the, son, when the father has to come out of this celebration for his younger son, in full sight of everybody, because he's got a pouting older son. And yet, what does the father do? He still goes out, doesn't he? So we see the shame of the father, and the, the father is an honorable man, and yet he does some shameful things. And I don't say what he's doing is shameful, but he bears shame. So his, his, his youngest son runs off in defiance of, of who he is and the character he is and the man that, that the father has raised him to be. He goes off. He agrees to giving him his share of the assets. It's not required by law. It's not required by custom, and yet the father does it. Why? And you know, when the son comes back, it's in full view of the neighbors. They're watching. Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> one thing we learned in Azerbaijan is people watch you. Everybody in our part of the city knew where we lived, right? Bob X back there laughing because he knows. It's like, oh, that's where the foreigners live. They knew the door. We could tell the taxi driver, hey, we live in, you know, F5, and it's like, oh, no, 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 I know. You don't need to tell me where I drive straight to our door. You know, they watch. Everything the father has done for the son is done in full view of the neighbors. Same thing with the older son. What kind of father is he, if not good and loving and honorable? So what we have here are two different sinners. These sons both dishonoring the father. There's the rebellious sinner, the rebellious son, whose sin is very obvious. He insults the father by rejecting his way through his greed and foolish actions, the foolish things he does bearing the name of his father. But what about the older son? What does he do that's dishonorable? How does he insult the father? He hates the very forgiveness that his father shows to his younger brother. There's no honor in that. And they're both clearly lost. So the, the younger son lost in a faraway land. And yet he, in his lostness, he returns. And he goes back to the father in humbleness, in humility, in sorrow. He, his repent carries him all the way back to where his father's at. The older son, he's got his back to his father the whole time he's in his presence. The shorter distance to repent, to turn to the father that's right there. And yet, we see the posture of the older son in defiance against the goodness of his father. It's a different way of looking at the story, isn't it? 
So we see the humility of the son, where the younger son and yet the, the older son, what does he do? He argues with the father and he accuses him. Isn't this what we see the Pharisees do with Jesus? What does the younger son do in response to the, to the father? He receives the father's love. And yet, as far as we know in this story, the older son never understood it. The father that was always with him, son, everything I have is yours. He doesn't understand it. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to Pharisees. And so the younger son is able to enter into his father's house and enjoy a great party while the older son stays outside rejected. Boy, Jesus had some whopper of stories, some really hard stories about those left outside the party and and the unworthy ones invited in. Wow. And so, I want to challenge us to look at the gospel through a different lens because here's the thing about shame and honor. Okay, first of all, was the younger son guilty of something? Yes. Is the father a just father, an honorable father? Yes. But there's more than justice at play here. There is honor, and honor being restored. And so one of the reasons we need to understand the gospel from this honor-shame perspective is we're becoming an increasingly multicultural society. And so we have people from Asia, and we have people from Africa, we have people from Latin America, we have the whole world right here in our city. And so understanding how they hear the gospel is important. But our own culture has changed. And if you don't believe me, you, you say something that communicates a biblical perspective on the way our culture is living right now, and what are you going to get? Well, you're, you're, you're going to be insulted and you're going to be shamed and probably publicly humiliated. Right? Our culture has changed. And so how our younger generation is looking at the world is through this honor-shame lens. So we as believers need to understand it. And I'll tell you this too, that shame is deeper than guilt because shame can be inherited. When we look at, you know, the the, the guilt-innocence paradigm, it's the individuals standing before God. And you and you alone are guilty for your sins. And you and you alone must account for it. But in an honor-shame context, we bear shame together. It is inherited. And so... Shame can relate to things that you've done living outside of a cultural norm, but shame can relate to things that have been done to you as well. And how many people live in a shameful pattern of behavior because shameful things were done to them? Abuse, trauma, has led them to not knowing how to behave in in an honorable way. And so shame is our standing in community and how we put up a facade to protect and to hide who we really are. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He not only bears our guilt, but he publicly bears our shame, taking on himself not just the sins that we've done, the wrongful, shameful things we've done, but the wrongful, shameful things that have been done to us. He bears this shame on the cross naked, spit upon, whipped, cursed, And what does God do with that sacrifice of Jesus? He accepts it as honorable. And what does he do? He validates the sacrifice by raising Jesus from the grave and seating him at his right hand in the highest place of honor. 
And then what does John say? Remember John chapter 1? To as many who believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. We have that right because Jesus bears the shame. Not just the shame of what we've done, but what we've inherited. And I would argue with you that this is maybe a more full, more complete gospel than many of us have heard. That Jesus not only restores us from our own wrong ways, but the wrong things that have been done to us as well. And if that's something you've never heard, and you need to process that, or maybe that's that's the first time you're like, okay, this is really good news, and I want to learn more about this Jesus, and how I can follow his way, and how Jesus can take my shame upon him, our shame upon him, and he can restore to us a place to honor, and give us his own name to bear to the world. If that's something that you want to talk about, I want to invite you into that this morning. So we have a time of invitation where we invite people just to come. If God's put something in your heart, maybe you need somebody to pray with you. So in the back, we have these, um, these um, uh, shades in the back, just kind of a private place where we have um, a couple couples on each side that are, are just back there to pray with you. But if this is a gospel that, that really speaks to your heart, how can Jesus restore your shame and bring you to a place of honor? I invite you this morning, come. Father, we thank you for good news. And we thank you that you are a God of honor who loves us and doesn't want to leave us in a place of shame. It is your desire for us to be restored with your honor, the honor that you gave us when you created us and you breathed life into us. Help us, Lord, to understand your goodness in a new way this morning. Help us to respond to that. Help us to come to you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So come, if, if this, this is your time to respond.